genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. You don't have to be perfect. As long as someone has a safe space and can have a voice, you're winning. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. What is it, Al? It's the audio destination for business, business professionals. professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Yeah. And one of the themes that came out from the Mad World Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago now is EDI Inclusion. D-E-I-B, there's lots of words for it. We don't worry, we're going to go into all of those again. We have done an episode previously on this, which we called um, D-E-I 101, I think, mm -hmm. uh, which was basically went into, I think we had the amazing Sonia Thompson on there, went into a little bit about what you need to know as a beginner. This is a little bit more advanced, but I promise you, this is one of the themes that will 2024 will be all about. So you need to be on top of this. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. There is sadly, again, no time for the news roundup this week. It will come back, I promise. Um, um, but yeah, I guess this episode is a news roundup. It is the the word of the week, the organisations to watch, it is the people who are cool. It is everything that news roundup would normally include anyway. So yeah, this week we are talking about diversity, equity and inclusion and specifically what we learn about future trends of DEI at the Mad World Summit, where we were the official podcast. I'm not sure if we've told you, but we were. Uh, so this episode is once again brought to you in partnership with Mad World and Make a Difference Media, which is the all year round media channel that supports both Mad World and the water cooler event. So we have three amazing guests, including Shelley O'Connor from the Bank of England. Jessica Shibley from the BBC. Yeah, might have heard of them. And Colbia Sergal, who's from the University of Warwick, but also has got a really interesting background. She's worked basically everywhere. She's a cool, very, very cool woman. We also had a conversation on Zoom with Farana Kudus, uh, who's a global DEI leader who's worked with Sky and NASA. Yeah, that NASA. She's worked <laughs> for NASA. Uh, while she wasn't there at the Mad World event this year, she is a speaker on the circuit. Um, and she's got vast expertise and we knew that she had value to bring to this conversation, which is why we included her. Yes. And regular listeners may well remember episode 45, which is EDI 101 for leaders, 
breaking barriers and fostering inclusive workplaces with the incredible Catherine Garrett, who wrote um, Conscious Inclusion and Sonia Thompson, our friend from the HubSpot Podcast Network. Her show Inclusion and Marketing is one to check out. If you are new to the area of DEI, we'd highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode. It's episode 45 EDI 101 for leaders. We will leave a link because today we are taking the conversation further. Yeah, and I'm always, as a business owner, not an expert like Leanne, I'm always saying, look, just give me the skinny, give me the the 80-20 of all of this so that I can get my head around it. So Leanne has put this into five particular areas, which is going to make things so much easier for you. So the first one is allyship, a word I hadn't heard of until we went to the mad world and it was all over. So if you've not heard of it, you will do in 12 months time, it'll be everywhere. Second one is belonging, which is the B in DEIB. The third one is DEI washing. If you heard of wellness washing or green washing, then a lot of people are going, oh yeah, we do DEI because it's the cool thing to do. They don't really. They're just basically, uh, they're just basically making it up. Uh, the fourth thing is data-led EDI. If you know anything about Leanne, you'll know that she loves data almost as much as she loves me, her husband. <laughs> almost. Almost. And finally, culture-led DEI. Confused? Don't worry about it. We'll be w- walking you through all of this. The expert Leanne will be talking through it. And if there's anything that sounds a bit like, hmm, that sounds a bit sciencey. I'll be asking the questions to make sure that she tells us exactly what we need to know. We have four incredible guests to help us explore the latest trends and best practice in EDI. So let's go and meet them out. The first one is Shelley O'Connor, who from the Bank of England. Shelley is a performance manager and LGBTQ plus network co-chair. You may remember from last week's episode, we featured a small snippet from her. Uh, but if you missed it, here's an introduction to Shelley. So Shelley O'Connor, pronouns she, her. Um, and yes, LGBT co-chair um, at the Bank of England. Um, and I've been in co-chair for a few years now, but I've actually been in the bank for 12 years. Um, so I'm a long-standing member, shall we say. And uh, my day job, I'm a work in HR. So I'm a performance manager. So the appraisals, end of year performance and all that fun stuff. Our second guest is Colbia Sergil. Colbia is the Director of Social Inclusion at the University of Warwick. Before transitioning into higher education, Colbia worked for some of the private sector's biggest players, including Grant Thornton and KPMG. Let's meet Colbia and hear more about her work and her transition into the University of Warwick. It was the role at the university which was a new role for them. Uh, because they really wanted to take a very holistic uh, approach, a strategic approach to inclusion for both their students, their staff, and actually what it was that they were doing, how they were doing it, and how the kind of inclusion agenda actually impacted on their outputs. So for me, that was a really kind of interesting challenge to bring what I had been doing in very different sectors to a university, which are kind of quite unique cultures, actually. They're very, very different from anywhere that I've worked before. So for me, that was a real kind of interest and a challenge. Our third guest is Jessica Shibley, who is the Interim Head of Creative Diversity at the BBC. Let's go meet Jess. Uh, My name is Jessica Shibley. Um, I work at the BBC. Uh, My role is Interim Head of Creative Diversity. Primarily, it's looking at uh, making sure that we've got representation in our content that's on and off screen and uh, making sure that the uh, production companies that we work with um, are diverse and inclusive um, and I guess effectively serving our audiences um, and providing value to, to all our audiences. 
And last, but certainly not least, we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Fahana Kudos, a global DEI leader who's worked with, I don't know, a little organisation you might have heard of called NASA. Professionally, I'm um, a global diversity and equity inclusion leader. Um, I also am a, a professional in change as a change maker. So driving change, defining change, building change and making it happen. And hand in hand with that goes diversity, equity, inclusion. Absolutely love what I do. People at the heart of that. Um, and therefore it all day, every day. Okay, Lee, those are our wonderful guests. Let's dive into topic number one, which is... Allyship. If you listened last week, you'll already know that allyship emerged as a key trend at the Mad World Summit and in DEI practice. So being an ally in the workplace means continually working to champion an environment of inclusivity, of mutual respect in the workplace. You know, traditionally being an ally meant using your personal privilege to support colleagues from what would perhaps be historically marginalised communities. So as Jess explained, being an ally isn't something you can just do. It's just, oh, I'm an ally. It's it's not a noun, it's a verb, if that makes sense. So we need to employ that empathy, that agency and those resources to truly be an ally of marginalised communities. And I'd like you to try and remember that definition as we explore allyship. Of first guest Shelley O'Connor, LGBTQ plus co-chair at the Bank of England, brings us to life really beautifully, introducing us to an employee reference group. So uh, ERG, um, employee reference group, networks, different people have different names. We call them networks, staff networks, colleague networks. And they're the communities that uh, are in an organisation that can really make a difference in DE&I. Um, so and allies are important. So um, as I mentioned, I'm co-chair of the LGBTQ plus network. Network, and I'm the first ally co-chair um, of the network and the network's been running for 17 years now. Being allies and stepping up when the communities aren't in the room, I, uh, I just, yeah, ally, allyship is a very important subject for me um, and to make a difference. So an employee reference group or ERG is an employee-led group that usually shares a characteristic such as gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation. They exist to provide support and highlight unique challenges and use their resources to make change that will create a safe space for employees in an organisation. And operating in this way, ERGs are a source of allyship. As a smaller business, obviously Bank of England, massive. As a smaller business, I wanted to find out whether you can actually do ERGs in smaller businesses. So I said to Shelley, let's just imagine we've got 20 or 30 employees. Does this still work? Whether it's your colleagues of ethnic minority or people of colour or LGBTQ plus or women, men, different genders, non-binary, like so everyone will have a voice and have different lived experience. So for your organisation to thrive, you need to listen to all voices around the table. So the networks, it doesn't have to be, if you're that small organisation, have to be a well-organised steering group and meetings. It could literally just be one or two people representing that community because when you do eventually grow, because most businesses want to grow, you've got a starting block to to kind of have that safe space for them colleagues so as i mentioned typically ergs will be created by people who share a characteristic but people that don't share this characteristic may also be invited to join an erg and in this way they become allies because they're using their empathy their agency and their resources as part of the group to promote the voice of others that need it 
Colbier, who is Director of Social Inclusion at the University of Warwick, believes that individual allies are not just important, but crucial to inclusion. Of course, I think anybody can be an ally. You know, I, I think that's the whole point of inclusion. Being an ally is actually being able to not necessarily that you may identify as being part of a certain group, but actually being able to have some insight and some empathy and some understanding of what it is like for somebody who may be completely different to you, may have a completely different background or even values to you. But actually just being able to step out of yourself and saying, okay, I'm not the same as that person, but I get it. I can see all the challenges that you face. And you know what? There are ways that I can kind of help in kind of challenging some of that myself. I may not be able to do all of it. I may not know all the answers because I'm not you. But if I can help, then these are the things I can do. Fahana also provided some really practical advice on how to build an ERG and how to contribute as an ally. And like most things, it starts with intention. Announce your presence. Announce your your intention. But most importantly, go through that intention to make impact. Often we'll sit here and say, it doesn't come across genuine, or I don't know how to start. But actually, the first thing we can do is start. So first of all, know this. You're absolutely welcome. And we want you. And then beyond that, have the conversation. And most importantly, let's explore what we can do together. Colbier also went on to to recommend respectful curiosity as this useful tool to becoming an ally as a leader. And I talk about respectful curiosity. So it's that kind of balance of being curious, but being respectful with it, you know, and just being sensitive to how you're asking questions and where you're asking questions. And actually, you might start with your own kind of knowledge. There's so much information out there. Um, you know, most kind of employee resource groups and campaigning organizations will have websites. So there's lots of things you can do just to kind of read stuff up before you maybe even start talking, which may make you feel a little bit more confident about asking some of the questions you might want to ask. But, you know, asking people questions about themselves obviously is a very personal, could be a very intrusive thing. So get to know people first, you know. It's thinking about our friends, you know, our best friends. We can ask them anything, can't we? It's kind of like they don't feel threatened by it because we know where we're at. We have a trust. And actually, maybe that's the first point to start. Building relationships, building empathy often start with understanding. And as Corbier said, that being respectfully curious by asking close people uh, questions or even just reading up on, on key issues can be hugely helpful. Another hugely powerful way of building empathy is through storytelling. And the BBC has been committed to this mission for more than 100 years. Today, their values are still aligned with that. They include things like providing information to help people engage and understand the world around them, to support the learning of people of all ages, and to reflect and represent the diverse communities of the UK. Our guest, Jessica Shibley, works at the heart of this mission as Interim Head of Creative Diversity at the BBC. Yeah, I think we're in a, a very unique position um, and I think it's a, a very privileged position actually and, and I think it's one that um, everyone I work with takes with a lot of uh, pride, passion, but also um, realises the kind of how acute that responsibility is as well um, as a public service broadcaster um, and, you know, at the very heart of our, our existence is, is providing that public service, uh, providing value 
for all audiences. Um, my background actually is in children's TV. Um, and for me, that's an area that I've been so, so passionate about because I just feel that, especially for young audiences, to be able to see yourself represented in content, in TV, is, is so, so important. And I think it actually shapes how you see yourself, um, how confident you might be about your identity, um, but also how you see the world as well. And I think um, we cannot underestimate the power that media can have on uh, society um, and, and especially coming from that children's media um, space, you know, it, I think it really can drive how, how children see each other um, and, and in our content to make sure that, you know, audiences can see families like theirs or um, different characteristics like theirs, whether it's disability, uh, whether it's LGBTQ+, whether it's race, culture, religion, um, you know, different houses, um, different homes. Um, and I think that for us in the broadest sense, we want to represent and reflect the whole of the UK um, and, and represent all, you know, the, the demographic of the UK. I think um, it comes down to, um, I guess, the, the stories. And I think it's um, for us, you know, audiences are at the very heart of what we do. And I think even the example I gave um, with um, the children's drama um, and you know, even the response we've seen over the last couple of days, like after announcing that there's a season two coming out, I think it's it's seeing that that audience feedback um, and hearing how it's actually changing people's lives. Um, we've got another brilliant uh, comedy that came out this year called Dreaming Whilst Black. Um, again, you know, sort of landmark portrayal of, of content. I highly recommend it if you haven't watched it. Absolutely brilliant um, series um, and. You know, we had diversity through and throughout the production team, um, the writer, the, the the you know the lead actor, also lots of incidental diversity, and then and then when we sort of see that response from the audience, I think that makes us like really proud. It makes me proud to see you know this is um, the impact that it's having. I think it's just like especially with that one, I think the audience is saying that actually this represents like um, their experience. Um, and they're feeling that their stories are being told. Um, and I think, you know, I think when historically we haven't had as much diversity, I think then people feel like their stories, I mean, I just think me personally, myself growing up, I didn't feel that I would even expect to see myself on screen, let alone a story of a family like mine being told. Um, and I think when we say, you know, we sort of, and, and especially with the children's point of view, people are like, actually that person, that character is like me or this family is like me, or this experience with, with Dreaming Sauce Black. We had a lot of people saying, oh my God, this this really <laughs> depicts my experience. I think that's really powerful. It might sound a bit glib how to say that watching TV shows about marginalised communities will help you build empathy and understanding and perhaps motivate your agency. But, you know, the, there are TV shows that have, have impacted societal change i mean will and grace was quoted by joe biden when he was talking about equal marriage rights in the u.s uh, i think he said something like that show taught taught people more than anything else we've ever done did um you know i think that that same year channel four it's around 2012 time um channel four were in charge of the coverage of the um, paralympic games and it went crazy huge the paralympic games that year some incredible stats i mean like the beginning of the summer awareness of what the paralympics was was 16 percent generally by the end of the summer it was 77 percent 
huge. And of course, we have the, you know, the BBC's Blue Planet presented by David Attenborough. It created what was dubbed the Blue Planet Effect. Um, so even the Queen apparently watched the late Queen, God bless her. Um, she apparently she still she watched this episode and she banned single-use plastic across royal estates. The UK government pledged over £60 million to fight plastic pollution. It really can have an impact watching, you know, having these incredible shows on TV. And that's why the BBC and Jessica's work is so important. The media, pop culture, it does impact social change through education, through representation, and of course, normalisation. It plays a crucial part in building allyship. I think we can all think of lots of different TVs and films that have sparked sort of a conversation that brought people around together around a set of shared values. Farana explains that this is actually the first step of starting a movement for change. So where do we start in this example, in this uh, scenario? We started from nothing. We started with an organization's values and those values were strong. And in order to strengthen those values, one of the um, ways we came together was naturally a group of people not, not knowing it was going to be belonging, diversity, equity, inclusion but actually coming together, naturally connecting. And that fantastic example started to grow. One of the concerns that I've got, being a straight, privileged, white, middle-class male, is that I'm going to mess this up. I'm going to say something I shouldn't say with the right meaning and the right sort of thought behind it. So I ask Shelley, what happens if I make a mistake? What happens if us as business leaders, we're doing our best, but we say the wrong thing? What do we do? Yeah, so don't be afraid to make mistakes. Like, it's fine to make mistakes. Um, if, For example, if I got someone's pronouns wrong, you kind of correct yourself and move on. It's about learning from your mistakes and showing that you're taking on board when you've been corrected. Even as small as follow different people on social media, um, because you'll pick up language and um, uh, like kind of um, th- phrases and what to say and what not to say. Like the big thing um, at the moment is the debate on the word queer, for example. People of older generations still remember the 80s and the 90s when that's a derogative term. Whereas if you talk to the grads now coming through, they're claiming it back and they're owning that. And it's a positive word. But you st- even in the community, there is still this um, debate and, and, and uncomfortableness about using the word. And that's fine. But it's about if you're using it yourself or where. So I personally don't use it because I don't know if I'm going to offend someone or not. But that's not to say that if someone said it to me about themselves, that I would take any offence and and some people will go yes of course like i'm proud to be queer um or some people might go actually no and 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 that's fine and then you go okay how do you want me to describe you if if that is needed or would you prefer if i just use the umbrella term of lgbtq plus or um rainbow pride like that that's obviously wonderful words to use but never be afraid to ask because um it's the same with pronouns don't make assumptions as well just ask and then you all know where you stand and move on. I honestly think that allyship is going to be something we hear more and more about over the next 12 months and what it actually really means to be an ally. You know, it's not posting a black square on your Instagram on, you know, for Black Lives Matter. That's not, that does not an ally make. It's, it's you know, it's, 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 it's not a noun, it's a, it's a verb. Yeah, so in 2024, you're going to hear that word a lot. And now hopefully you've got an overview of what it is 
If you want to do more, which I hope you do, then dive more into, well, just Google it. You'll find more stuff on there, but also maybe contact some of the guests. So their, their links are in the show notes. Um, I know they'd be, I know Shelly can't, she can't share everything she does at the Bank of England because obviously some of it is private, uh, but she certainly said she was very open to talking to anyone about how they can become a great ally. So that is allyship. The second area trend that we're seeing is belonging, and that's what we will be exploring next. As a leader, you might have heard, probably heard of DEI, but more recently, there has been an extension to DEIB. What does the B stand for? It stands for belonging. When I was speaking to Fahana, I said kind of tongue in cheek. I said, oh, come on. Is this just another word that we need to learn to placate those snowflakes? Uh, Is it just a TikTok thing? Is it going to disappear in six months? Is it really a thing? It is a thing. We evolve over time. And over time, you know, we need to um, reimagine certain things, right? Reimagine and give new lease of life to, to our work, to our goals, to our ambitions, right? And so belonging has always been there. But I truly believe it's it's a word that started to come in to really re-energise and really bring back focus on, on what it is we do and why we do it. And actually, it's the first thing before diversity, before equity, before all of the words that you just said. Because without me feeling like I belong in a conversation with you, you won't get me in the door. I was reading that transcript of your interview for Hannah and I did, I, I was kind of laugh and I was like, oh gosh, I hope she, I hope she knew the tone that that question came in. It did make me laugh like snowflakes. Is it just for the snowflakes? Um, yeah, belonging, feeling accepted by a group. That is the definition. And it has been around for a while. I think Aristotle actually talked about belonging. So it was quite some time ago. Um, it had, belonging had a place in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, there are two psychologists called uh, Baumeister and Leary. Uh, they were really considered the pioneers of belonging research. And they found that not um, that failing to satisfy the need to belong can cause some really serious consequences, some really serious mental health consequences. And belonging even forms part of our culture model, the RX7 um, at Oblong. So all in all, academics and practitioners agree that belonging is a fundamental human motivation. Al, I'm sure there must be applications for this in marketing. Maybe it has a different name. Belonging is, is such a deep psychological need to belong to something that that's why in marketing, um, a lot of a lot of um, products or services try and create communities around. The most famous one is PC versus Mac. Um, if you have a Mac, if you sit in a coffee shop, like one of those knobheads, and you open your Mac and it displays, it illuminates the apple at the back. The, re- the reason you're doing that and you're not doing it with a shitty Dell, sorry, Leanne, you have a shitty Dell, but the reason you're doing that is because you belong to the Apple crew. You know that opening that up, if you have this product, you will belong. So we know in marketing terms that belonging sells, shifts product, uh, but also there's huge benefits for the individual in the business when you talk about belonging as part of a culture. Here's Farana. So there are many, many benefits for me to call out a few. So you have greater employee retention. The number of people um, leaving your organisation significantly uh, decreases. Employee satisfaction has gone from an example I'll give you 5.7 to 9.7 out of 10. Now, when you get happier employees, what do you get? You get greater productivity, you get greater outcomes, and you get phenomenal creativity going on. And then let's go beyond that. What you then start to become 
it's a linchpin. Is that is that bar that everyone else is looking towards? So we start to set the standards. We do have to talk about the serious side of belonging. Not having belonging has been shown to cause major distress. Feeling like we don't belong has a damaging impact on our mental health, on our self-esteem, even our own sense of who we are, our identity. To explain more, here's Vahana. But what is most um, disheartening is when we get things wrong as an organisation. Workplace harassment, bullying, discrimination, it happens. Now, we can't shy away from it. It ruins people's lives. And it ruins people's lives to the point that they will never recover. But what we're talking about here is real stories that are out there that is driving people to suicide, that is making them unemployable, ruins their careers. So this isn't no longer about, I want to come into work to feel good, to feel like I belong, and to feel like I'm included. It's more than that. It's about survival. Obviously, these are very extreme consequences of not belonging or getting belonging wrong. But there are lots of other adverse impacts a lack of belonging can have on our business and our culture. If they don't get it right, then it comes across as as fake. But let's just imagine in that workplace, we believe there's belonging. But when we enter that workplace and we let some of those guards down, those those layers down I talked about, it's almost like a slap in the face. And it's a realisation of... I either am stuck here, and I say this from an employee perspective, because I see this and hear this day in, day out, and actually there is no belonging, it's just words, or I've got to get myself out quick. And so I think the the implications of when belonging really doesn't exist, or really belonging is not really understood, it can be catastrophic. So this leads us on to the third emerging topic in DEI, which is DEI washing. We've talked about wellness washing. We've talked about green washing. I think you can probably have a good guess what DEI washing is. Yeah, I mean, your DEI washing, like wellness washing, like green washing, it's a result of token efforts. It's ticking boxes without any intention or any authenticity. So, you know, DEI washing can be things like um, DEI training, anti-racism training, introducing quotas without any kind of real intent about what that diversity is going to look like in the workforce. It's ticking boxes without any meaningful change to the organisation or to organisational behaviour. And the cure for DEI washing is simple authenticity. Here's Jess. We have seen through that is that then you bring in that authenticity um, and that culture as well, because, you know, it's not enough just to have that representation on screen. I think the writers that are writing those stories, it's so important they have those lived, that lived experience. Uh, the people that are directing, that are producing those stories understand and there's no kind of um, I guess it it reduces that sense of kind of othering as well. Um, And so that authenticity um, is then through in and throughout the content. Um, So then in terms of culture, you're creating an environment where people can, you know, voice alternative opinions and and, and share uh, different thoughts and that to be welcome. But also ultimately the content that we're serving to our audiences is is that much better um and and you know we aim to be best in class for that um and i think the audience can tell whether when it's tokenistic representation compared to that really authentic uh representation and there's some really really nice examples to share and actually staying on that theme of 
of children's um, content. We had a drama, which we've just announced the second series of A Kind of Spark, um, but that, that, you know, sort of uh, TX'd um, in, uh, earlier this year. Um, and we had neurodivergent actors, uh, neurodivergent uh, writer, and neurodivergent um, lead, production leadership as well, which meant that that authenticity and the story came across so beautifully. And then we saw the audience response, which was really powerful, where um, people were writing on social media about the impact that this show had on them, but not just children, adults as well. And many stories of people were getting a diagnosis of autism for the first time, um, which, you know, is life changing, really. Um, so that's just one example of many where we've seen that this um, way of looking at our content, not just what's the audience can see, but also what's behind the camera um, is so, so important to that, providing that authenticity. Jess went on to explain how the BBC user diversity targets and authenticity to drive meaningful and lasting change. I think um, data is really, really important in uh, DE and I um, initiatives. I think um, whilst it doesn't always give the full picture of, of what's going on, I think it's a really, really important tool to have um, to, to understand and give insight into an organisation. Um, so at the BBC, we have uh, specific targets around our workforce data. Uh, we have targets around gender, 50%, uh, targets around ethnicity, 20%, disability, 12%, and also socioeconomic diversity, 25%. Um, and, and we look at these with a lot of rigour. Uh, we monitor these, we publish this data in our annual report. Um, and we don't just look at all staff, we also look at um, the data uh, specifically in leadership roles as well. Uh, influential roles because I think that's really important as well to have in any organization uh, regardless of size to make sure that that diversity um, is is there at, at, in those leadership roles as well um, so, so that's one aspect of, of data that's that's really important um, in, in the work that I do and, and across the BBC but but also I think what's important is um, looking at the diversity of the people that we work with, our suppliers. Uh, so for us at the BBC, that's independent production companies. Um, so we have some commitments around um, the, the leadership of the production teams um, that we work with and also the companies and uh, whether they're led uh, by a representative and diverse um, sort of individuals. If you have been on TikTok recently, you'll know that Gen Z are I'm sorry. All... Can I just pause there? Have you been on TikTok recently? I have not been on TikTok <laughs> recently. TikTok <laughs> is not for me. It's funny. I opened it up and I, and, I, and I spent about an hour on it. I was like, I know this isn't for me. And you get to a certain point in your life, you just go, this isn't for me. And I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> but anyway, my point is Gen Z are all over this idea. And also, let's be honest, because, you know, I'm not quite boomer, I'm Gen X, but still I'm a bit like, oh, I don't understand these young generation. No, hang on a minute. Youth culture has this history of pushing for social change. You think about the baby boomers back in like the 60s, um, uh, then you got the hippies, and then, uh, you know, us in the in the 90s, we had all the lad culture. I'm saying lad culture because it was called lad culture in the UK, um, you know, and, and then the, and music and everything. The whole point of this is that, that the youth drive social change which is one of the reasons why Colbia decided to move from corporate into higher education. She saw that education is the key to addressing inequities in society. Equity in society is very important. 
And education has got to be one of the fundamental building blocks, not just in this country, but globally, if we are thinking about equity and social justice for people, wherever they are. So I thought the education piece is really critical here to really moving the dial on the inequities that we see in employment. You know, who gets to the top? Who gets to work where? You know, who even gets to go to university? All of those things. Trigger alert for Colbier because I asked her a very, very difficult question. I said, the whole point of higher education is to exclude the majority of people who don't get the grades. So that's the whole point. Oxford, Cambridge, you have to get a certain number of, a certain level of grades to get there. But then a university wants to be inclusive. So how is a university going to reconcile these two ideas? I, I think that's a really kind of interesting dilemma, actually. And I think that I believe that most people actually have great capability and great potential, actually. And that's what we miss out on because we don't all have the same starting place, do we? We don't. We only have to look at where the state of education is in this country. Unless you go to a private school or a school which is very well equipped um, and resourced and has great teachers, you're kind of at a disadvantage even before you get to university. So I don't think it's down to universities to be able to, it's not really within their capability or capacity to be able to level out all of those things. So I think as a society, we need to be thinking about our education system and actually are we giving people a, a kind of a level playing field? Are we giving young people a level playing field to have that opportunity to apply to universities where they want to go and actually study? Now, the work that we do at Warwick in terms of widening participation is about addressing some of those issues. And we're trying to do as much as we possibly can through our widening participation strategy. And I'll just give you some examples of a, a programme that was set up uh, in um, partnership with uh, another organisation that works with young people, helping to get them into university. So we actually set up with them in partnership and doing running lessons, after school kind of classes for young kids from the age of 11 upwards up to A-level and just kind of supporting, providing additional resource, additional teaching sessions to help them get into university that may not perhaps be coming from schools that they're actually already going to. We also look at the circumstances that people are applying to the university. So we try and make contextual offers, taking into account their background, that they may not have all the same advantages as some other students. So we are trying to adjust that level playing field as much as we possibly can, but it is a much bigger societal issue. I think Corbier explained this really brilliantly. I think it's more about access to opportunity and that's what plays a vital role in, in social change. And, you know, as a business, you can play a role in this too in terms of, of broadening your talent pool. We talked so much about that, didn't we, on EDI 101 episode. Um, Sonny Thompson particularly gave some really great advice on there um, and Catherine as well in terms of how you can broaden your talent pool without falling into the trap of positive discrimination. So if you want to learn more about that, go back to episode 45. So while authenticity is the cure for DI washing, data-led practice is the prevention, which leads us nicely to our fourth topic today. Here's Corbier to explain more. 
Well, I think sometimes people talk about diversity or they hear that word diversity and they hear inclusion and they think it's about doing soft, fluffy things. And soft, fluffy things are lovely to do, but actually it's not what always kind of really changes the culture. Talking about inclusion in a strategic sense is planning for it. If we really want to see things change, and this is about how we do things, and the how is about our behaviours, but it's also about the systems and the processes that we set up in organisations, whether that's our policies, our procedures, our data, what data we collect, where we collect it, even how we signpost something, all has implications for how people interact with it. And for me, it's about thinking, how do we plan that into a our business planning, how we approach what we're actually delivering. So in the case of a university, it will be about how do we teach our students? What's the methodology we use? Our students aren't the same. They have different learning needs. And then the wraparound of that is our employees, so our staff, because they are the ones who make it happen in conjunction with our students. They are the ones who have that knowledge, the expertise that they're sharing, but also co-creating with our students. And if you think about universities, there are researchers there, incredibly clever people. Amazing things happen on university campuses. And that's a big operation. So you have to plan it. I mean, if you're a business, you don't just kind of approach it by doing, uh, oh, haphazardly, we'll just do this and we'll do that. You think about it, you plan it. What are you trying to achieve? And how are you going to do it? And how do you know it's the right thing to do? How are you going to measure it? What does success look like? To me, being strategic about inclusion is about doing all of those things. Approach it like you would anything else in a business or a big institution. I joke that Leanne's favourite word is data. But if you are in marketing, if you're in sales, if you're in finance, data is key. Data helps you make decisions. And we record loads and loads of data. In fact, there's probably some big companies out there who are in trouble for recording too much data. But we record loads and loads of data in these other functions. So why are we not really doing it with people? What gets measured gets monitored. Here's Jess from the BBC. Having, you know, sort of very clearly mapped out our workforce diversity targets. Um, and I think, you know, being accountable to those as well has, has been really, really important um, in terms of, of driving representation. Um, and so in this year's um, report, we, we saw that we met our gender target for the first time, that's 50%, um, which, which is fantastic. Um, and and that's, that's you know, a change that we're really proud of. Um, and even in terms of ethnicity representation, we still have some work to do. Uh, we're looking at um, a target of 20%, and we are at 17%. Um, and then a big area a focus for us um, recently has been around disability representation. Um, there's been an acknowledgement that there needs to be more uh, representation of disability in the industry. And we have um, made some, some really big commitments around that. So working with other broadcasters, um, there's the TV Access Project. We have BBC Elevate specifically looking at mid-level um, disabled talent um, and you know, we in terms of our, our workforce uh, disability uh, numbers, we're at 9.4 uh, on disability representation. Our target is 12. Um, but also talking about kind of off screen as well, we've actually seen that number um, increase over recent years um, to 8.9 8 .8 um, in, in 
2022-2023. So I guess what we're looking at is, and it comes back to the data question, doesn't it? Like we're, we're using our data to really track um, progress and also make our, ourselves accountable. Obviously, that's one part of it. That's the uh, quantitative data. The qualitative data is really, really important as well. And I think you need to have both to be able to understand what's going on in an organization. Um, and so we regularly get that qualitative data as well, whether it's through um, staff surveys um, and, and getting feedback from our colleagues as well, which is, which is really important. Now, of course, we can't just collect data and say we've collected data because that's DEI washing. We're not just, this isn't just a tick box exercise. The whole point of this is to use the data to affect change. Here's Jess again. I think we need the data because you can't, you can't change, you can't change what you're not measuring. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's trickier to measure how people feel. Um, and, you know, sort of, I guess, but what we are using the data is, is looking at our joiners rates, looking at our leavers rates, um, but also being really specific as well. So I think it's very easy. And I've seen this in other organizations where sometimes people feel like diversity and inclusion is doing good. A, a colleague once referred to like these random acts of diversity and inclusion, sort of, um, and so people just feel like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do a DNI initiative. But I think what we're, we're doing here with the data is to actually look at, okay, where are, where are the interventions required? What are the initiatives we need to roll out? So actually using the data to ad- identify you know whether representation isn't where we want we want it to be and then combining that with looking at like you know how people feel in the workplace how inclusively we run our meetings um what's the experience that people are having are people happy at work um and and that part of things um but i think the data is still really important um and and to use it in a way um that informs future initiatives i think it's really important otherwise you can't just take this blanket approach and and um, feel good for doing a dni initiative i don't think that's what we're what we should be trying to do the thing about data is it can be quantitative and i think that's what we think about when we think about data we think about the numbers but data can also be qualitative it's about the feedback Shelley, who is LGBTQ plus co-chair at the Bank of England, shared an example of how they are using qualitative data to make organisational policies more inclusive. So the first one that comes to my mind is um, ways of working, like coming out of the pandemic. So I was on that project uh, as as one of the project leads and um, we went out to all the networks and was trying to understand why do you work from home and, and all that. Obviously, there is the cost of living as well um and so you can be more inclusive to those that can't afford to live down in london and essex you can so we have people that um live in newcastle birmingham glasgow etc and they only come down a couple of times a month i remember someone going i really want to work from home uh, because i can wear my hair naturally and i was like wow and that just really struck me uh, it was someone that identified as a person of colour and they were like, I can actually wear my hair in an afro and natural and how it is in my culture. And, and I was just like, as a white female myself, I, 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 will, I don't have that. Like, I, I've never considered that. We all have bad hair days. But like, um, <laughs> and it was just, that is important to that individual. And the fact that they never felt comfortable on wearing their hair like that in the office really blew me away and i was like okay so because 
the more of ourselves we can bring to work, the, the better we do, don't we? Because we're not putting on a show. We're not feel like we're hiding something. I, I heard something really good yesterday um, at an event uh, internal to the bank. And um, someone was like, it's important what you wear on your feet. So if I'm wearing heels and I was like stiletto heels and my feet are hurting and it's already 10 o'clock, like I'm like, I've got the whole day here. It's taking away me being comfortable, me being myself, me being the best thing I could be at work in my special spe specialities because I'm concentrating. I've got a bit of my head going, my feet hurt. Whereas if I was just in trainers and comfortable, I wouldn't ever be thinking that. And then I've got 100% focus on what I need to do, what I need to deliver. If people aren't bringing their full self to work, you're always hiding. You're always, so if someone's not out, you're constantly watching what you're saying. So when someone goes, oh, how, how, was, your, how was your wife? Oh, well, they've made that assumption that, that you have a wife and not a partner. And so do you come up with a charade? Do you correct them? And, and that goes through someone's head as a simple question, whereas you just went, what did you do at the weekend? Or how's your partner? And I'm going, oh, I, I can just like, I can be myself a little bit more. Regular listeners will know that while Leanne likes the word data, I like the word ROI. Well, technically that's three words, but I like the word <laughs> ROI. I want to know, this is cool, and I want to be the best business owner leader in the world. I know I do, but I've got to make sure that I'm getting some kind of return on this investment. Because let's be honest, we're not going to do it if it's going to cost us thousands. We don't see anything back. But I think it's a little bit of a, I don't know, I feel a bit icky bringing up this idea of ROI when it's clearly the right thing to do. So I asked Fahana, can I ask about the business case? Can I ask about the ROI? We've always got to be thinking about ROI. So my, so my cutthroat answer is throw ROI out the window. And unfortunately, those business cases, those ROI proposals, we still need them because businesses still need to survive. But businesses can survive and go further with DEI at the core of that, at the centre of that. So absolutely, those business cases, those return on investment assessments are absolutely needed. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. In fact, if you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. I think it comes back to the fact that the two things can coexist. You know, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. We can have, uh, you know, DI-led organisations and make money. We can embed well-being and make money. It's not one or the other. And I think this is a really outdated mindset from I don't know when maybe even back to like the the 20s and 30s when we thought you know that that kind of getting the absolute most out of people until they fell over was the only way to have a successful business 
And I think this leads us nicely onto the culture-led DEI, which is the fifth point we're trying to make here. This means that in order for us to take DEI seriously, it has to actually become part of the culture. We know that culture evolves, it changes, it matures. And as leaders, we don't have to get it right from day one. Let's be honest, in your business, have you ever got anything right from day one? Probably not. And even if we do get it right, things will change. We've talked a bit little bit about TikTok, but five years ago, people weren't talking about this kind of thing openly, and now they are. The, gen, the new generations are coming in. we got Gen Alpha coming in in about 15 years' time into the workplace. We have no idea. They have no idea what they, what's going to be important to them. We've got no idea what's going to be important to them. So we have to be adaptable. Um, we have to ensure that whatever we're building is built into the culture, is part of the DNA of the culture. Now, you might think this is just a corporate issue because we've talked to huge organizations like Bank of England, with University of Warwick, we've got BBC in here. But as Colbier explains, it's not about these huge organizations. It's about you and your business. Do you know, quite often people will ask me, what's the difference? It must be so different coming from the corporate sector or the public sector and coming to work in a university. And I kind of think about that and I think, actually, you're not that different. You know, people are people. Fundamentally, we're talking about behavior changes. We're talking about how do we view people? How do we treat them? How do we get the best out of them? And those are exactly the same things that people want to do in a university, in a school, in um, KPMG, in a big corporate um, or, you know, in a media industry. We want to get the best out of people. We want to use our resources well. And in a university, you want our students to do well. We want our researchers, our professors to do the well, to be innovative and to be creative. That's what it's about. And actually, those things aren't that, that different. We're talking about human behaviours. How do we view each other? How do we treat each other? Do we understand each other? Do we understand how we interact with different people and what we need to do differently for different people? I don't think it's that different. It really is about that continuous learning. And I think it's also important to remember that this isn't meant to be a comfortable process. Change is uncomfortable. As humans, we don't like it. I never quite trust the people who say they like change. I'm like, do you like change or you just like change that you can control, which by its nature is not really change. Change triggers our fight and flight response. It makes us stressed. But as Colby explains, being challenged as a leader is part of the process. So for me, it is about um, understanding those differences and how do we bring that together in a workplace because difference can also bring conflict we don't understand someone we don't understand something it can take us out of our own comfort zone so that challenge is actually so so diversity and inclusion is a challenge and it's something you have to practice and learn it doesn't necessarily just come naturally to you by osmosis i mean some people may be lucky and it does and we're much more um, open to some things about people than we are about others some things about people are a challenge to us and i think that's where we have to have the opportunity to question why that is and actually is it appropriate and actually what can we do differently where we don't feel so challenged by that, but actually we can be welcoming about that and be curious about it and understand what that means for that other person. So I think there is a challenge here for people. So it's not always soft and fluffy and nice, and it means you have to work at it. Shelley is from the Bank of England. I can't think of many organisations that are as old, as um, perhaps as staid, as um, as 
What other words can you use to describe the Bank of England? Yeah, sorry about this, about? Do you know what I think about when I think about the Bank of England? I think about Mary Poppins, you know, at the end where they go into the... Yeah, exactly. It feels like an old institution. As Shelley points out, if the Bank of England can change, then you can change. It just requires intention. Oh, we are very diverse. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's obviously you've got the old. And and I even when I was joining 12 years ago, I was very like, oh, it's going to be white males in suits. I'm going to be the only female. It's very much not like that. And we're getting better and better. I'm not saying we're there. We're like, and you'll see in our annual reports, our targets and, and where we are. But the fact that the employee networks exist Um, and we have 13 of them in the bank, it really is making a difference. Um, And you can see, like, I remember there used to be only one DEI advisor at the bank when I first started, and they weren't taken seriously. It was very much like, we have this because we have to. Now we've got, uh, I I think it's a 15 team strong in HR, let alone the DEI advisors that sit in each of the business areas as well. So we're very much taking it seriously. Um, it's very important. Like um, you would have seen the court review that we published on ethnicity back in 2020. Like, so there is important work happening in the bank on DEI. And we are very much, um, it's one of our strategic priorities as well. We can't make the decisions for the economy, for financial stability, for monetary analysis without having the diverse people in the bank because we are the bank of United Kingdom. Therefore, we need to represent the people of United Kingdom. So we have people that work up down the country, um, at different ethnicities, sexuality, gender, age, etc., etc. So we definitely need to represent. Otherwise, we don't talk when we talk and do the speeches and and all our wonderful subjects. We're not representative, and we won't take on board other people's opinions if we don't. Shelley stressed that any change, including those related to DI, need to align with the wider mission and vision of the organisation. And I think this is really the key for SMEs, for any business, it's to create psychological safety because that's what people need to share their ideas and concerns in the first place. If those ideas can work, great. But the point is, start with psychological safety. Here's Shelley. Like, no no one's perfect and, and we haven't, we're not successful with DNI or um, the employee networks without trial and error and and and, tr- and and trying out things, listening to people. It might not always work out um, or there's compromise as well. So it might be that one network may want to make some positive change, but we need to think of the wider mission and vision of that organisation and will it disrupt that or does it empower it and 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 celebrate it? There needs to be, unfortunately, a, a balance there. Um, but that's not to say that they shouldn't be listened to because everyone needs to compromise as well. But just you don't have to be perfect. As long as someone has a safe space and can have a voice, you're winning. Shelley also shared some critical advice for business leaders that are looking to embed DR into their culture or any intervention for that matter. Carve out time. If it's important to you, if it's important to your business and it's important to your culture, make time for DEI. The thing with the employee networks, co-chairs, any one part of the network, you do it on top of your day job. So um, as a co-chair, obviously I have a lot of responsibility. We've got three, four hundred people in our network 
let alone the people that are watching our network, right? It's me and two others that are co-chairs, so it's good um, even balance so we can pick and um, help support each other. But we're doing it on top of our day jobs. Um, we are like, so I've got a busy role in HR and then I'm trying to balance that to give time and commitment to, which I feel very strongly on um, to the network. Um, and then it's it's time balance. And so do I have to log on a weekend? No, because work-life balance, I need to set the right message, but also I need to get things done. Um, but also I'm not going to give that up because that's important and it, it, the fine balance, of uh, that is the main challenge, I would say. What was really good and what I would, a bit of advice I would give to any organisation is look at what you're recognising in your organisation. So as a performance manager, one of the key changes I made this year was in your objectives, if you are a co-chair, you can have half a day a week dedicated to being that co-chair and them objectives obviously has to be signed off by your line manager. So it's like a, a a contract between you and your line manager. Look, I'm going to be spending about half a day a week being a co-chair. That's you committing and giving me time as well as I'm holding myself account. And, and that's something I introduced in January and it's really helped with the time balance. There is no silver bullet, which is good news and bad news. The bad news is you can't just go and say, right, here, implement these six things and then we're done. That is DEI washing. But the good news is you don't have to get it right from the start. For example, if you start off and say, right, I'm going to create an ARG group for women in our organization, that's a really good start. And then you can go into the know and say, right, we're going to create an ARG for women of color. I don't think anyone expects you to get this right straight away. Well said. Let's hear more from Corbier on the nuances of diversity and what you can do as a business leader, as your approach, as your practice matures. I don't think we're trying to mesh people together in that we're trying to make them all the same and they've all got to kind of do the same things together. I think it's about understanding that people are different. And actually, our differences are what make us quite unique. And so what you do for, um, you know, a white straight woman, for example, may not be what the same that you need to do for a woman who's white and gay um, or who's um, of Indian origin like I am myself or, you know, somebody who's had a very different kind of experience. All those things are going to be different. You can't put women into the same bucket and say we need to do the same thing for everybody. Um, it's about understanding what those nuances are and actually what makes the difference to somebody being really happy where they are. We know that when we're happy, we're much better at what we do. We're much better at actually engaging with other people. Whereas when we're pretty unhappy, I mean, we can only just think of it in ourselves. If we wake up in a grumpy mood, we're not really that great. We're not really that productive. And we're not really that nice to other people or we'll get the best out of them. Well, I hope that we've covered everything you wanted us to cover. If we haven't, let us know. We're on LinkedIn. You've got all our contact details in the show notes. We'd love to answer your questions. Let's just quickly recap about the five areas that we talked about today. The first one was allyship. The second one was belonging. Then we went on to DEI washing. Just be careful you don't fall down that road. Uh, and then we went into data-led DEI. And finally, we talked about culture-led DEI. That's ingraining it in your culture. Yeah, really interesting, interesting episode, I think. Interesting areas of, of DIB that we've now learned that are deepening, that are advancing and evolving. Um, and I think a really nice follow-up to our first episode, um, EDI 101. So yeah, thank you. Huge thank you to all of our guests that have helped put this together, to Shelley O'Connor, 
from the Bank of England. Thank you to Kulbir Sergil from the University of Warwick. To Jessica Shibley from the BBC. And finally to Farana Kudis. Next week, we are bringing you a masterclass in workplace culture and well-being with leaders from, quite simply, some of the biggest and most successful organizations in the world, including Mars, L'Oreal and the NHS. We will see you then. Bye bye for now. Bye. I keep doing this. (laughs) 